Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, and I'm your host. I'm glad you're with me today. We're uh, looking at lessons today for Monday, February the 22nd of 2021. You can see links to those lessons right there in the description box. And they are Psalm 41, Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 20, uh, Hebrews 2, 11 to 18, and the first 12 verses of John 2. So remembering that, that we're still in Deuteronomy, we're still trying to track along with Moses as he prepares the people for life after he's gone and life in the land all at the same time. And, and he is today going to share some things about his concerns primarily about the people. Um, the, the word that would probably encapsulate this entire week has to do with belief. Um, it, it, it's every single part of uh, the the lessons for the week have to do with belief. We're in John, and John's all about belief. I mean, he he says in John 21, he says that the whole reason he wrote this particular gospel with these particular stories is so that you would believe, and by believing, you'd have life in Jesus' name. So everything, when we're talking about John, remember he's talking about two basic things. He calls them signs. All his stories are about signs. And so he's talking about signs and belief. That's the whole point of this. And belief has many layers of meanings throughout the book of John. And we're going to see some of those this week, actually, some of those nuances about belief. And, and the, the depth of belief matters, too. It's not just some basic belief about things. It, there's a lot more to it um, that John says is necessary for salvation. Um it's got to have particular content, and it's got to have the power to change your life would be the kind of belief that's necessary to get you uh, into the kingdom. It would be John's uh, basic premise. And so we're going to talk about belief in, in every lesson and in every level, and what are the benefits of belief, and what it, why it's necessary to believe. Um, and in the Deuteronomy lesson today, one of the things that's really important is, is remembering and that remembering has kind of a particular content to it. The word would be anamnesis in Greek. And it's remembering the past with the effect of bringing it into the present. So it's making that memory live now in us. And that's the whole point of what we do at communion. We're, we're in some ways participating in the uh, Last Supper is the intention of what we're to do. And that's the reason we recall the words Jesus used as he instituted that. So we, we're trying to put ourselves in that position of, of, of participating with Jesus and the disciples um, in, in sort of the mournful aspect of that, but also the hopeful aspect of that. And so we, we bring what he did, his sacrifice, into the present by doing that. And so in this lesson today, Moses is very clear to tell them, this is, I think, a really important thing, and it fits in with what I was just saying about communion. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. And, and that's an interesting way of saying it, because what he's saying is, is that, that don't forget him. And, and he says, if you stop doing the things that he commanded you to do, you're more likely to forget. So there's this physical thing that you do that brings to mind the reality behind it it brings to mind the one who gave you those commandments and so there's a there's a there's an importance to being physically obedient to God's word because when we keep those commandments when they would say when, when I keep a mitzvah it it it, it 
inures to me as benefit. And so, but, but the way that it, we would say that that happens is, is that, that we do things because he told us to, and we begin to walk in a certain kind of a freedom and a certain kind of different way of thinking and of life. We're, we're choosing a path that's different, and in choosing that path, we remember why we choose that. And his concern is here in this particular passage that that when you get in the land and everything is going so well, you're so blessed that you then suddenly become prideful and you forget the Lord who did all the stuff necessary to get you there, who protected you from all the harm that could have happened to you, not only in Egypt, but also 40 years in the wilderness, that that you're going to forget that and then now suddenly you're going to take credit for this. And he says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. No, he says, remember that it's God who gave you the power to get the wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And he continues to remind them, it's not you. It's not something that's great about you that even caused any of this to happen. It's not merit on your end. It's a matter of you just being obedient to the one who's done everything for you that you couldn't possibly have done for yourself. And then he begins to use some interesting language right at the end of this particular lesson. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you should surely perish. Well, that is absolutely Genesis language. You will surely die. If you eat of the tree that's forbidden for you, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely perish. And then he says, like the nations the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish. And listen to this. This is further Genesis 3 language. Because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And that's exactly what he says Adam's sin is, is that he listened to the voice of his wife. And the, the rest of that would be, instead of my voice... And so Moses is using that same kind of Genesis language about temptation and seeking after other gods and following after them to say that that that's the kind of punishment. That's where we are. And it's interesting because what he has done before that, he's talked to them about the land and what he's describing for them is a garden like the Garden of Eden. And so he uses that same language to pull in that image into this. So he's, he's warning them that the same dangers in this new garden exist that existed in the last garden. And you've got to be careful and you've got to obey the voice of the Lord. Don't listen to the voice of another, not the voice of your wife, nor the voice of the serpent. So then we come over from that to the gospel, and it's, it's the wedding at Cana in Galilee. It's John 2, 1 to 12. So Jesus is there with his disciples. His mother obviously has a role to play here in this wedding itself, at least in the feast, because when they're about to run out of wine, she tells Jesus that, and Jesus looks at her, and, and we read this, you know, woman, what does that have to do with me? That The word woman there is, you shouldn't read it the way we would say it today. There's a much greater respect for it. There's not He's not distancing himself from her. There's a respect involved in that word. And he says, my hour has not yet come. And then his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And I can just see the look on Mary's face, right? I mean, she's rolling her eyes. She's looking at them, and she knows he's going to do something. She knows that he won't allow this to become an embarrassment for the hosts. And so she, after he tells her it doesn't have anything to do with him, he looks, she looks at the servants and said, do whatever he tells you. 
And then he sees these six enormous water jars there. You've got somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons of water jars there, and, and they're used for ritual purification. And remember yesterday, Jesus was talking about new wineskins and all that. So there's not going to be a need for these purification vessels in the future because Jesus is going to have done all of that work. And so he tells them, the servants, to fill those up with wine. Now, that, that's a little bit scandalous to start with because that's going to ruin those things for the purification vessels now because they're not supposed to have anything in them but water. And so he tells them to fill them with water. And you can see the look on their face too, right? Like, why am I doing this? Why are we messing around with water jars? That's not the problem. It's wine is the problem. But they filled them all the way up. And he says, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. You can see these guys, right, looking at each other. Are you serious? I'm going to get slaughtered if I walk in there with this wine that I, or this water that I just pulled out of a purification vessel. And so they took it in there, and the master didn't know where it came from, but the disciples and the servants knew. And then the master praises the bridegroom in the wedding because he's now bringing out the best wine. This is the best stuff we've had so far, he says, but this is really odd. Nobody does it this way. And so then it says that, that is, it, it, this is the first sign that he did, and it manifest, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And then he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. I can just you know imagine the, the servants thinking, what the heck? What happened here? I wonder if they tasted the, that wine that had been in those jars and then now you're going to leave the host with these jars that can't be used these huge jars that can't be used anymore for its intended for their intended purpose but they're not going to need it either jesus is bringing fullness i mean he didn't just bring a little bit of wine he brought 180 gallons or so somewhere between 120 and 180 so this is the fullness of the kingdom in the same way that moses is talking about the land that the people are getting ready to enter it's now the same thing here with the kingdom there's jesus leaves them with enormous amounts of fine wine when he leaves there and so the disciples begin to believe in him there we know that their belief there is they've already in a couple of cases stated what their belief is you're the king of israel you're you're the one who is to come they've told one another we think we found the messiah when the one who's promised in scripture and all that and so now their belief is takes another step up because they've seen something they've not just heard john's testimony or they've not just sat with him now they've also seen jesus do something and so then we come back, and we're going to spend some time in the next couple of weeks, actually, in Hebrews, which is one of my favorite books, too. And uh, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. He's a very eloquent writer, and he makes uh, re well-reasoned arguments uh, for pointing to Jesus and all things. And so then he goes on in this particular passage. He's talking about Jesus calling us brothers. Well, that's a great condescension, isn't it, for Jesus, the Son of God, to call us brothers. And he says... He's quoting scripture, I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And then he goes on and on to speak about these things that, that we share flesh and blood, the brothers do. And so Jesus then had to come down and take on flesh and blood also. He's pointing to the incarnation as being necessary to become like us in order to save us that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And he says that is the devil there's a lot to unpack there because the, with that thing about the devil, that's a huge departure from, from normal Jewish belief then and now. 
and their understanding of who the devil is. I could do something about that if you want me to. Just message me and say, John, do a little podcast on the on the Jewish understanding of the devil, Satan, and all that kind of stuff. And so he, he says here he has the power of death, and then he Jesus delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And, you know, it's hard sometimes as Christians to think about this idea of the fear of death because we've known so long that we need not fear it that, that what would it be like to think you had no eternal hope, that this literally was all there is? It would make you a different kind of person, I believe, if you didn't have that same belief. And then he goes on to say it's not angels he helps, but it's the offspring of Abraham. So he had to be made like us in order to save us. And we're going to talk about that maybe in the next couple of days too, because Jesus points to that very idea about why it was necessary to become like that which was being saved. But it comes down to faith. It comes down completely to faith. And it comes down to, again, we got to be the kind of people who are prepared to live in God's kingdom. So Jesus has made us fit to escape the kingdom that we're in, the kingdom of this world that's beset by sin. And he's making us fit through our obedience to become the kind of people that are fit to live in a different kind of world. And we've got to believe him and we've got to trust him. And so we do the things we do based on that. I'll end with a prayer that's part of Psalm 41. Happy are they who consider the poor and needy. The Lord will deliver them in the time of trouble. The Lord preserves them and keeps them alive so that they may be happy in the land. He does not hand them over to the will of their enemies. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and ministers to them in their illness.